So, the, um, I will say, security, I was really nervous, because, you know, leaving for an international flight from the United States is always kind of a pain in the butt, right? Because of the way security deals and all that sort of stuff. Canadian international security was such a pleasant time, all things considered, <laughs> except they all thought I was French. Every last one of them thought I was French. So I would walk up and they're saying hello to every other white person approaching them. And then I come up and they're like, bonjour, like just sweat. And I was like, I know I look like John Baptist Arbin, but uh, uh, I do not parlay the Francais. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it, every single, it was clockwork every single time. But hey, speaking of Canada, so we're joined by Rachel Samoa. How you doing? Good morning, everyone. And it's Semayoa. It's a lot of vowels, I know. Oh, well, and I'm, you know, I speak American. I speak it good. <laughs> so for the two people who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us like a hit, a quick list of all the things you're doing? Sure. Um, so my name's Rachel uh, Samayoa. I teach trumpet uh, at the University of North Texas. Um, I also co-direct uh, the brass band at North Texas with David Childs. I play in Lantana Trio, which is a brass trio. Uh, which is comprised of UNT faculty uh, as well. Um, I'm really into chamber. So I, I play in a serif uh, brass quintet, serif brass quintet. And um, I guess that that's that's the uh, the quick rundown about me. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think anybody in our audience knows uh, where UNT is um, <laughs> or who David Childs is, just oblivious that- to those things. Uh, but we just got off, uh, we were just hanging out at the Great Canadian Brass Band Festival. We got to adjudicate a little bit of that. We did solo and ensemble, and then we uh, did bands the following night. Uh, and that whole thing was run by Anita. Uh, the last name is McAllister, right? Anita McAllister. Yeah, Anita McAllister. And, and I tell you all what, I've never seen a event go on for the first time so well. Like... Uh, Anita's really top-notch. She's top-notch. And the whole staff was phenomenal and super willing to help, at least from what I saw, but they had to be nice to us. What are they going to do, be mean to the adjudicators? So how did this come about? Do we know how... You said this was in the first year. Who was behind it? Do we know? Well, I think Anita is the mastermind about of all this. I was there in January with Seraph Brass at the University of Toronto, and um, she was telling me about this brass band festival she was going planning to do in May. And if I would be interested in adjudicating, she might reach out to me later. And she was telling me about all the work that she was doing. She was concerned that it wouldn't get a lot of attention. A lot of bands wouldn't go. Um, so I know even in January, she was all over it at that point. So I think she was the mastermind on that. Yeah, Anita, Anita was. And uh, Hannaford had, been, had hosted brass band events like that in the past. But it's been a while because there's been, you know, body interest um, from Canadian bands to go to it. Um, but after the pandemic and, you know, everything with uh, NABA's championships being so far away from Canada, you know, I think the bands are kind of starving for something to do up there. So, so Anita jumped in and um, and put together the event so that there'd be something for those bands up there. And, and of course, NABA you know, jumped in and threw some financial support there to help get it get it back going. So, you know, so that the Canadian, you know, who are a part of the North American Brass Band Association, you know, despite the fact that it, it's, you know, sometimes doesn't seem that way uh, because there's so many American bands that are involved in it, um, you know, but, you know, it was, it was a great thing. I, I look forward to hearing all about it because I haven't heard any news about it as of yet. Well, there are a total of eight bands, I think, in total. We had eight bands. Um, And it's very interesting. I mean, you know, it was for an entertainment contest, though. I think that's a nice full day. I mean, we're going, what, 10 to 5 with a break. And then and that was without Hannaford because Hannaford did the big gala concert at the end. Um, And they had Gary Curtin come in and solo with Hannaford. Um, And then they had... They they premiered a piece, right? That I think a couple piece. pieces, two pieces. 
Oh. I should know. I read. I sat in the reading band because Rob Vaughn told me to. Um, that was that was hilarious. By the way, you sent me like a picture. It was remind me who it was. It was you. Was it Bob Robert Miller and Gary Curtin uh, yeah. and you and some high school kid? And there, there yeah, was a high school yeah. kid on the end. Yeah, they, that was they the, put him. They put him on first. Yep, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that and, was that was amazing. And it was funny too. Like I used the whole like, I'm not gonna bring my instrument excuse to like not have to play that weekend. Yeah. And then Rob's like, oh, we have, are you playing in the reading band? I was like, no, nope, I don't have a horn. And then Rob goes and like runs off and finds some instrument for me to play. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm sitting there next to uh, Gary Curtin, sur- trying my best to survive on this thing because like it was it and I did not agree. And I had was never it a played Yamaha or 321 I, or no, it wasn't a three. It wasn't a three, two, one. I'll say that much. Um <laughs> Thank goodness. It was a compensating instrument. Uh, but I'm sitting there next to uh, Gary Curtin and his tribal tattoo, Adam's euphonium. Uh, and then Rob, who's on his main axe. And then, like, this is the first time either of them have heard me play in person. And I'm just like, oh, what button do? I don't know. Like, I just, you know, on top of, like, being like, I would say that those that piece would be like a like a good second section test piece kind of like ish level. And uh, yeah. Um, and also, uh, you know, another star, especially in the wind band world, uh, Cynthia Johnson Turner was like the guest conductor for all that. And so I'm like, you know, she's right there. You know, I can, she, you know, it's euphonium. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> the bed while, you know, Cynthia Johnson Turner's there. So it was great. It was what, a fun kind time. Of, what kind of, what kind of music did they, did they read in the reading section? Oh, it was, they had two, they had two pieces that I think were commissioned by by people who were um, involved in the other bands. They were like composers. Uh, I think Marcus Venables is the name was a composer in residence, um, mm-hmm. and they had, it was like that. But it was like it wasn't like Whit Friday marches or anything like that. It was it was music. <laughs> it was it was rough. Uh, well, it was hard to read. It wasn't necessarily easy, and with especially with like an army of cornets and everything. Like <clears throat> I think it overall went really well um during the the main concert i don't know we were backstage it sounded great the thing i liked about this the great canadian i always want to say great american breast <laughs> great canadian uh is that there wasn't uh it's there wasn't they, we didn't rank the the bands as adjudicators we just gave out prizes section prizes which i thought was kind of neat maybe for the first year that's maybe more appropriate because there was a big divide in, in um in talent i would say it was also very, it was interesting, the mentality of the bands around that, because if you would have done that with like a like the Grand American Brass Band Festival, for instance, if you would have said, we're not going to have a grand champion or anything like that, I feel like a lot of the American bands would be like, oh, well, we're not going to go if we can't like win, win something. I feel like that's kind of an attitude here. Whereas like a lot of the Canadian bands just wanted to go for comments in general. Like they didn't, they weren't really particularly interested or at least what they were, what they were showing was they weren't particularly interested in necessarily becoming a grand champion or like working through that sort of a situation. Um, yeah, there was definitely a, a an educational um, focus for that, and and Mid Atlantic was the same way as well, where they weren't they weren't really trying to place the bands in an order or anything. They just wanted to get comments from the expert judges and and improve and just be in that community of brass bands, which is you know I think great, you know. <laughs> It's perfectly fine, you know. That's that's why the Mid Atlantic Brass Band Festival got started because uh, we used to bring in we used to bring in uh, guest conductors to kind of work clinics with Atlantic, and then when the other bands started bringing in their guest artists to kind of work with them, and then we figured, wait a second, we're all really pretty close to each other. What if we all just came together, and then just shared these people, and we could all play for them. And then and then divvy up the time, you know, with that feedback equally. And so Mid Atlantic Brass Band Festival kind of came out of trying to get that that feedback just a little bit before NABA to do the the final push. So I think I think that uh, especially with an entertainment competition, um, I think uh, that not having placement is having like overall placement is good. 
because it gets a little bit like, you know, you have these bands that are so spaced out and everyone can be vastly different, different performance levels and stuff, but everyone can, can get that feedback in some form, you know, everyone, everyone has, has something that they can, that they can achieve on. Sorry, I was just going to say, um, excuse me. Uh, I'm not part of NABBA. I've been kind of out of it a little bit, but it's I, it seems that the brass band genre is really taken off in North America. It has been for, I think, a while. And I wonder, um, these community players that are mostly comprised, these brass bands, if if they really like the competitive aspect of it, in addition to performing, because there's a lot of wind bands as well, but I really see that they're, they like the comp- competition aspect, like Aaron was saying in America. Maybe we're just more competitive, or we just need purpose. So I, do I, don't, I don't think it's about about necessarily as being competitive. I I think you know at the end of the day, everyone that wins loves to win. Um, but I think that what what drives most Americans in the brass band movement is one is playing more advanced literature and then trying to play it at the highest level of proficiency that they can get themselves to do it. It's about striving for excellence in musicianship. That's not to say that you can't do that, you know, on a pop concert playing the Cowboys or, or a Superman or something like that. It's just that, um, you know, when you spend three, four months trying to play a master work for the brass band at the, the highest levels that you could possibly get for the group of people that you have in the room, that translates to Superman and the Cowboys year round. So I think there's, you know, I think it's more of a, you know, an internal satisfaction. I think it's the same way in England as well, or all over the world where the, those top brass bands, they, they like the competition part of it. And I, I don't think it's as much for the win as it is for the satisfaction of playing the, the great music at the highest levels. It did make the uh, the adjudication very interesting because we were picking, we were still picking like best sections, and then there was a march competition involved in the whole thing. Um, but it also made it really nice because for the most part, we were we did everything. All of our comments for the brass band competition were verbal, right? So they were all recorded comments. We didn't do any handwritten ones. So it was actually nice to. I feel like when you're adjudicating, sometimes, like I feel, I feel like because we did paper on the solo day other than the, the the person walking out to like take their bow and get their solo started i didn't get to watch them perform i just listened and wrote like crazy so it was nice to like sit back and watch the program and just kind of talk a little bit and have the scores and all that sort of a thing and then um but it did make things interesting because i'm like is what i'm saying helpful in any situation because i'm not looking for like and I just feel like it's like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And, but the spirit of everything is not to do that, you know, necessarily. I remember, uh, I think we had 25, everybody played for 25 minutes and we'd have like 10, 15 minute break. Um, I'd stop and Aaron would go on for two more minutes after the band start playing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he is giving them some good stuff. Or <laughs> stuff. Let's not, let's not quantify it in any way, shape or form. I literally ended just about every tape going, I hope my lunical ramblings are helpful in any way, shape, or form. Like, I literally was just, like, um, thinking that well, way. They were probably entertaining, if nothing else. Well, there was some points with Weston Silver specifically uh, where they just did some things, and I made jokes out of it. Like, like I was making fun of the – there was, like, the, they did um, – a big drum feature section and they had like four tom drums come up to the front and they did this very like blast-esque little show of it all and i was just like yep we need more toms there's not enough toms we need more toms oh the cornets are standing up i'm about to be assaulted by them oh now you're coming out and then they did the whole thing where they came out into the audience and they did the whole like so i was making fun of them for being like every broadway musical in the 2000s where it's like oh, they're in the audience <laughs> so, uh so yeah maybe we'll see uh, if I'm not invited back ever again, we'll know why. It definitely felt like a uh, marching band adjudication. I don't know if y'all ever done any of that, uh, but I have, and it was very much that. Um, I kind of, I kind of like that more so than the writing. At first, I was intimidating, intimidated because I was like, I don't know what to say. You know, balance blend. You know, how much can I say about that? But there was a lot actually to say. It was interesting. 
enjoyed what, it. What kind of uh, strategies were there into to building their show? Like we heard about, you just said Weston, Aaron, they they kind of brought people up to the front. They put people in the audience. What what other things did the bands do that you found interesting? Well, it seemed like Weston, um, because they had that they had the experience of doing it with um, they had the experience of doing that with the uh, the the entertainment contest. Uh, which one was it? Was it Great Great, Great American? It, no, they did the U.S. Open. U.S. Open. Thank you. Yeah, um, I judged them at the U.S. Open. Yeah, did they do the same program. Maybe. Uh, I don't think copy and paste, but they did some of the same things. I think is what some concept. Scottish. They yeah. did. Did they do Gale? I think they did Gale Force, and they did a euphonium solo they, with Robert they, Miller. They didn't do a euphonium solo this go round, I don't think. But they did Gale okay. Force, and then they did. Um, uh, I think they did the same Tom feature as well. Him of the Highlands, they did that. Um, okay. But uh, it was so they, but they had had experience kind of con- coming up with a concept and doing that like brass and concert style situation. Um, and then the other bands you could tell hadn't necessarily messed with that too much. And so either they, cause most, they mostly just sat and played very good concerts. Like everybody, no one played poor. Like everybody did a really nice job. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of my, my vibe. And if they did have a theming, it was like kind of grasping at straws a little bit, or it would be a very vague theme that they could just kind of do a little bit of anything with um so but it's a new concept to that area of doing doing something like that um, yeah but everybody had a march that was the big thing everybody even if they didn't compete in the march contest everybody had a march and the marches were really good and all the pieces it was nice because almost everybody did some like one thicker piece and then everybody would do some sort of like entertainment e thingy and it seems like the bands that were most successful with that, and I noticed this with Brass in Concert as well when it comes to entertainment, is when you're featured solo or section solo or whatever solely, is the uh, is your like most entertaining thing, like your biggest pops piece. It tends to go over extremely well. Like I love that we had a bass section. I can't remember which band did it. I'm going to look it up here in a second. But one bass section came up to the front and played uh, Fred. Uh, uh, never had a friend like me from Aladdin. So you had all four bases. Do, 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 do. And that was brilliant. It was, and they came that up front. It was all, it was awesome. It was great. <laughs> there was a band at the U.S. Open that did the, the Leroy Anderson typewriter. And they, they had the, ba- the the couple of players up in the front that were doing a solo thing. But the band was sitting in two rows right mm-hmm. across the center of it. And they and they did this kind of leaning thing, and they would all go like this. It was the most hilarious thing I've ever seen a brass band do. It was it was very effective and very you know very subtle, you know. But it's kind of funny how you you know you look at something like this and say, "What is entertainment? What is entertaining?" It's hard. It's surprisingly you know, hard to think it's about like, it's, that. It's, it's kind of a little bit like porn. It's like, I don't know what, you know, you know it when you see it. You know, that old definition that they gave for that back in the 60s, you know, with all the, or the 70s. But I just know it when I see it. And uh, and, you, and, it, and it was that way. But the, the thing that, that tied all of it together was that they had to play really well. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever approach that they took to putting a program together, if they didn't execute it well, it just wouldn't have been entertaining at all. Yeah. You know? So it, you know, it, it kind of, you know, it, you're on the, the the leaders of the groups when they put these programs together to to come up with something that's interesting that, when played well, you know, would stack up against the audiences um, what they're looking to hear. We also had a lot of Salvation Army brass bands, um, so that kind of music as well, which I really enjoy. <clears throat> and um i i was i was surprised i don't know why I, I i didn't realize it was um such a thing in canada as well as in america in american things so i i kind of want to know more about it like is it a, a britain thing a british thing as well or is it the, the, you talking about the salvation army band right yeah the salvation army was founded in in london 
and you know and quickly adopted salvation you know brass bands and singing as their as their their musical outlet um for ministry so you know that whole the whole salvation army brass band thing did come from england and of course you know canada being in the commonwealth they they would have a fair number of you know salvation army bands there uh, if you want to check out a lot of information about that, um, seek out um, Ron Holtz's books on the Salvation Army brass banding in, in the United States. Um, I definitely he, he wrote, Yeah, he's 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 the expert on that, and we've had him on the podcast before as well. Um, we yeah, had but him for he's, a double, and he was just like, double. it was it was just like just let the man talk because it's just like constant information that I just want to soak up. <laughs> He yeah. was my MD at, at Lexington Brass Band. So yeah. I love yeah. him. I think he's yeah, in he Atlanta was, now. He's in Atlanta now um, and retired. He um, He's forgotten more about brass bands than any of us will ever know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, he was, when I was in the Lexington Brass Band, he was the music director there as well. He, you know, that was back in the early days of the, the LBB. And, uh, you know, just this, I, I, at that time, I didn't really know how big Ron Holtz was, but I, you know, you know, when I started playing with the band, but I learned over the years that, you know, there's no limit to the number of things that that guy has produced or could produce. Yeah. So he's definitely one of our big legendary brass band, you know, personalities. So it was Hannaford Youth was who did Friend Like Me, by the way, just putting that information out there. I ran all the way to go get my program to find that out. Your camera it, fo followed you too. It does that. Yeah, it'll do that. Um, That's pretty stalkerish there. Well, you know, if if I had anything worth anything, I'd be worried about it. Um, what was also really interesting is there was a lot of, um, you know, there were eight bands, but there was no shortage of like one person who might be in like three to four of those groups. Like there, there was a couple people. Like I think uh, one woman, her name was Anita. She got, she placed in the horn solo competition on Friday and then played with like two bands on Saturday and directed a band on Saturday, right? And just like was running this gauntlet of sorts all around. You know, you know, Rob Miller was all over the place. Um, and of course, she had like emergency subs for certain situations. Uh, there was one gentleman, I think his name was Alex on B flat bass, and it was interesting. I was like, man. Every single time there's a fat, like, sounding bass section, this guy's back there. I think he's, like, secretly extreme because he's just, like, very nice Canadian. <laughs> I like Toronto Maple Leafs kind of dude. And then he, like, every single bass section he was in, it was like, woof. And I was like, I would think you're secretly extremely good at your instrument, my guy. Because, <laughs> like, every single, if I was hearing, like, fat pedals, I was like, hmm. There's one thing in common every single time. So that was neat. And, and you know, you would have these varying levels of bands having, you know, players intermingled across all the way around, um, which would make things. And, and, and you would have influences like, of course, uh, the Mississauga Temple Band, um, you know, because Rob is involved with them. They had a, a pretty entertaining uh, program as well. They didn't do as much as like the standing up and staging, but they kind of knew how to program for this thing. Um, because you know, Rob's involvement with Weston Silver. Um, did the Salvation Army bands that play there play a Salvate traditional Salvation Army repertoire or did they play secular repertoire for this? A little column A, column B. It was, it would be mostly like if I'm looking at the Temple Band right now. Uh, you know, let there be light. Then they also had their own march uh, in there as well. Um, but then they also did the California Dreamin', like that's an okay. American song. So like it was a little, you know, like of course, like their more brass bandy pieces were probably more from Salvation Army books. But th that's also not uncommon for non-Salvation Army bands to just be playing Salvation Army associated literature anyway. Oh yeah, for sure. The Salvation Army bands don't compete. It's it's kind of not in the mission for them, so you won't see a Salvation Army compete. Which is probably, if they had several Salvation Army bands, the big reason why it wasn't a competition uh, for the festival there. You know, it's, it's better to have bands participating, you know, in the form of the way that they can participate. 
you know, rather than just making a competition. They still wore their uniforms as well, which, yeah. um, just throwing that out there. Uh, I did enjoy the, um, one of them played their march, which I thought was interesting. I thought it went really well. They just, you could tell that there was some music they played that they played for a long time, traditional type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So who, who would you guys have put out there as the uh, most entertaining or the best band that you heard of the day? I mean, if you look at the awards, I think it's pretty easy to tell because uh, Weston Silver came in and just played extremely well. Um, yeah. And they also were the ones who did the most entertaining or the most entertainment-esque things with staging yeah. and, and but also the Pete, the selections, you know, everybody. And I, you know, it's what it is. It's a it's a first contest. It's the first time they're ever doing something like this. So a band bands that had never been involved in something like this just put on really nice concerts and entertainment contests are just like slight, like you do that and a little bit of this and that, you know? Like we had, yeah. there was a band that played When Thunder Calls, the Paul Levitt Cooper, but did not do the directed staging at all. They just sat in the box and played, you know? And that piece is specifically written to not do that. And it was it was hurtful to the overall. So yeah, um, <clears throat> not to say that any, that, I don't know, Weston Silver came in and just was like, yeah, in, from in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a, that's a yeah, that's a good band. I mean, they they were they were really good at the U.S. Open as well. Amy Leptis. Who won the U.S. Open this year? Uh, Five Lakes Silver Band. They also won the the NABA Championship as well. So they're they're having a spectacularly good year. <laughs> yeah, one thing I was wondering about the staging for. Uh, for this festival, because I've noticed with the U.S. Open, staging has been going through like a transition where it used to be bands were all over the stage, like shifting back and forth constantly. Uh, and I think at the U.S. Open, the bands are starting to like settle down, <laughs> which I like yeah. being low I brass. I don't like yeah, running I around the stage constantly. Yeah, I think it goes it goes in waves. There was a time where, you know, bands were dressing up in costumes and, you know, doing all sorts of crazy things thematically, you know, to to say this is entertainment. And I think they've they've gone away from that too because it just because you put costumes on doesn't necessarily mean it's entertaining. Um it's it's not a, a given for that. And and just because you change your location on the stage doesn't mean it's entertaining. You know, it all has to be musically motivated. And I think it, it it depends on the repertoire that you select or the creativity of what you do with it. I think that's the interesting thing about entertainment contests is that there's more of a blank slate for you to do something creative. Um, and I and I do think logistics plays a big part in it. When you play at an entertainment contest on a stage that you don't get to rehearse on, it's very difficult to know whether or not you can actually pull off. I mean, imagine if your stage were three feet or four feet less wide than, than what you're used to rehearsing on. And then you get, you, you run in and you boom, oh, you're in the wall or you're off stage or something. It's like, you know, I think the, you have to be careful with, with the environment that you're in. And if you're going to do some crazy, you know, outlandish things with your, your placement on the stage. The last time I did the U.S. Open was with Dublin Silver with Tim Jamison. And he actually got the, uh, the size of the stage and he planned everything out and i'm telling y'all we legit marched in that in that show it was about star wars or something <laughs> that was a long time ago yeah I, there yeah there was a time when the, when the drum corps influence on uh on brass bands in america influenced the entertainment contest quite a bit i remember a friend of mine playing in fountain city um when they did the u.s open and he was out he was in kansas and he, he was telling me he's like yeah we have a four-hour um choreography rehearsal and I was like, say what? <laughs> yeah, DSB has charts. Um, it's like it's like a miniature of like marching bands. So everyone can see this is this is the shape we're doing here, and we all have our numbers where we are. And uh so I can I can imagine I can imagine uh a few years ago when it was much more drum corps oriented, how how far that could have gone. And he totally he measured the stage and tapes it out in the rehearsal space so you can know exactly how big it is and where the offstage area is and everything. 
shout out Tim. Yeah, shout out Tim. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. You can't you can't let any detail go un, unnoticed when you when you do a competition like this. If you want to be successful, the, the the margins are so small. You know, you can't you can't leave anything out. Yeah, but to like answer the question, um, I guess so. Most bands set up norm like what you would expect from you know typical brass band situation. What I will say is. Uh, there was two things that definitely led to more band success, and I don't know if Rachel noticed this too, but bands that were willing to play with the directional brass a little bit more, so bands that were willing to have cornets point out or trombones point out at any given point or anything like that, um, they that tended to end up with more success because they got to play dynamically different than they needed to. Um, for instance, Weston Silver... There's that, uh, and there's that hymn, there's that chorale inside of Hymn of the Highlands where trombones and cornets are muted, cup mutes, mm -hmm. and they stood up and pointed out. So that way the musicians got to play pretty comfortably, didn't have to play super, super quiet, but every, the audience got everything, right? And so yeah, it was that's a, interesting. It, was, it, it, it went over so well. It, it, like literally he like had a pink jaw. It, it sounded so pretty. But yeah. then also the bands that were not nervous to like there were a lot of bands that like however the stage crew set them up that's how they sat and then there were other bands that came in and completely undid that entire thing and made sure that they set up as close to home as humanly possible and those bands also saw some more success um there were definitely bands who were set up way because th those stage crews are going to set you up big on purpose they're gonna so that you have room to squish in a little bit and some of the bands just didn't they stayed really wide and you know most of us rehearse in in situations where like I'm sitting on the lap of the second euphonium player, you know, and so if you're not used to that, if you're not used to that wideness, especially in a place like NABA, right. Where you're in an actual concert hall, um, you know, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to hear things that you didn't hear. And so that, that staging was noticeable. So you think the, the bands that were farther apart did better or bands that were closer together, did the better? bands that adjusted to what they were used to did better. Okay. So there are two, would you say there are two professional brass bands in America? So I guess ish battle, brass, battle Creek. And then the one in Pittsburgh, the name River is City. River City. Are those, are they the only two? I mean, no, I think North, the, Brian Meixner started a band in Greensboro called the North Carolina Brass Band. That's a professional band as well. It doesn't work nearly as much as, as River City, but it's patterned after River City since Brian played there for a while. Um, but it, but they're definitely paid. It's a, definitely a pro group. Um, uh, other than that, I can't I can't think of any that are pro. I mean, unless you count Fountain City. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you know the the Army Brass Band, which doesn't exist anymore, was was definitely I would say that was a pro group, but. Um, you know that that would probably be be it, and and not only that, but other than maybe the British Army brass bands, there might not be very many pro brass bands in the world. I mean, there, there's brass bands that have enough money that they that they um, that they give stipends for lots of things that the bands do, but but I guess Athena brass band would be one too. Like, um, well, it's pro level, but I mean, we aren't paid. You know, well, they're, we're giving some, you know, um, like a, if there's a conference, um, maybe free housing. Um, we certainly weren't giving free housing at Midwest um, last year. Oh, by the way, uh, Amy played wonderfully uh, with Athena Brass Band at Midwest uh, last year. Thank you. Did you do what? <laughs> Did you just have a concert oh. like a couple days ago? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am. I uh, I was in louisville and i got home and now i'm heading out to new jersey for something and then going straight to itech so it's kind of like come home uh do my laundry repack head back out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we were um we played uh anita cocker hunt was our was our conductor for this one uh jessica used up too many uh too many of her her personal days. So it's also a really bad time of the year for educators right now. Too. Really, yeah. It just yeah. And we went to uh we went to a wonderful um uh I don't know what to call it. 
uh, farm, like nature preserve, uh, explantation type situation. And it was, it was beautiful. We played on the lawn. We rehearsed in uh, the library, which made me want to put on a ball gown and climb up on a library ladder and sing some big Disney number because um, it was just beautiful. And I just love old libraries. Uh, so I got to be in, a, in an old library for like the majority of my day for two days. So it was awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had, a, we had a great time. We brought um, a lot of new people into the fold of, of into Athena, gave a lot of people some new experiences and played a great show. So yeah, that's my report. <laughs> <laughs> now off to iTech. <laughs> I think my favorite, one of my favorite uh, Athena brass band experiences was the Gettysburg uh, Brass Band Festival, I think it's called. What an interesting place um, with all the cannons and Civil War stuff. I love playing at Gettysburg too. I think the Brass Band Festival there is wonderful. It's just so the the environment is so peaceful and beautiful and um you know you have a a great audience it's very appreciative and this little hill that everyone can sit on in the shade and they frequently have like an instrument petting zoo so kids can check out instruments and it's just it's just great it's a it's a wonderful <clears throat> afternoon of brass band stuff i love it yeah well gettysburg um, is an, is a fascinating place for, you know, just for American history because of the, right. the civil war battle that was held there. I remember one time I was traveling through there and just, you know, going from Rochester back to North Carolina and we ended up hitting Gettysburg, driving right past it. Like a rat, like right towards the end of the day. So we ended, we said, let's just go and see and drive around it and see what's there. And we get there and we were there like essentially at, at, as the sun's going down. And it was not a cloud in the sky, as much light as the sun can produce. And as it's orange, as it's setting down and you're just looking across the battlefield, it was, it was pretty hauntingly beautiful, you know, knowing what, what happened and occurred there, you know, the, the, the grounds there are just, just spectacular. So to have a brass band festival there, is, I think is really, really cool. And the, the seminary where it takes place is a Lutheran seminary, and that seminary was actually part of the battle. In the battle, so yeah. you were essentially on, you know, part of the battlefield uh, for yeah. the for the performance. I I love it. I would love to go back, um, whether it's with Athena or subbing with Atlantic or with Dublin Silver or anyone. Please please ask me to come back in some form. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> So is there anything else you guys want to talk about with the uh, with the breath, the Canadian festival? Toronto's really pretty. I really like Toronto a lot. Them's I, my people. I could have seen like when when uh, my husband and I were were getting ready to move. I think uh, if I weren't certified a certified teacher in uh, in obviously the U.S. and my my husband wasn't admitted to the bar in in us <laughs> i could have seen toronto becoming like a you know a thing because i'm originally from ohio so toronto is not that far away um but i think sometimes you get stuck in in some of those things you know um of of crossing that border but toronto is beautiful it was much nicer uh i was there in january and it was miserably cold for me for for the texan that i am and but this time around it was gorgeous the flowers remember that area we did a walk once and there was just all these beautiful flowers everywhere oh we, well so they put us on a hotel that was you know for all all intents and purposes a little far from the venue and but i've enjoyed it i enjoyed being in a walkable city for a minute um so i walked to and from the hotel every single time even when offered car rides um, and I really want to see it in like October, November, because it's weird for if I was going to equate it to anything in terms of like the architecture of University of Toronto and kind of the surrounding area where the event was taking place. It's very similar to like, obviously, it's a metropolitan area, but it's also very similar to like the Duke campus 
and like the way that like cathedral, very dark building kind of I can see thing. That. Yeah, it was it was kind of along those lines. Um, but there was a park right beside it. Food was right, like there was food and pub readily available, like in the general area. You know the important things of the brass conference. Uh, the hall was really good. The recital hall was, you know, I thought, you know, everything sounded great. So it's a great spot for it. Um, the uh, the only th- the, thank goodness, um, you know, they were cornet players and not trumpet players because uh, I don't think that little exhibition hallway uh, would have been able to handle squeeing. Uh, quite so much because there was no carpet involved. It was all brick. So thank goodness oh. we weren't getting in there at 8 a.m. and people, you know, were trying to pop off quadruple C's. So that was nice. Yeah. But yeah, I genuinely, it was a phenomenal. I I, I would, because, you know, I, I, I have, I jokingly, like, when shaking into his hand on my way out, was like, well, now you got to do it. You can't not do this anymore. Because it went off so well, and um, you know, I would highly encourage, especially if you're a band up, you know, closer to the border, you know, I would highly suggest making your way out there if you if you have the opportunity to. Um, be just it was it was a very nice day. Uh, Definitely yeah. beautiful surroundings. And can we give a shout out to Gary Curtin? I had never heard this man play. I heard about him. Oh my goodness. He played Alan Vizzuti's, uh Carnival of Venus. I didn't even think that was possible. It's not hardly not even, it's not even possible on trumpet, let alone euphonium. And I was completely <laughs> blown away by his musicianship. I, I had no idea. I had never heard of him, and now I'm a huge fan. He almost <laughs> played as pretty as his euphonium looks. It was oh, it, they were almost. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's saying a lot. <laughs> well, <laughs> Must be it, a pretty euphonium. It, well. It is. I told him he needs to get because it has like jokingly what I call tribal tattoos on it. And I told him he needs to get a sleeve of the same tattoos that he has on his euphonium. Uh, he didn't think that was as good of an idea, but you know, who am I? Hey, Rachel, before we uh, before we let you go and wrap up here, you're doing like, you're, aren't you doing like a brass residency type thing coming up soon? Yeah, later in August, August 9th through the thirteenth, we're playing at the Prairie Music Residency at the. It's in the University of Saskatchewan. I'm flying into Saskatoon. So it's in there somewhere. And um, But I'm really excited to, I will be doing like three solos with, with the brass band there. And the conductor is Joe Parisi, who I, I used oh, to work with in Fountain City. Wow. Actually, I'm having a phone call with him like today at 12, because I sent him the music that I wanted to play, the solos. And he's like, we need to talk. I've got some ideas. <laughs> so, <I'm> just <laughs> Somebody got called to the principal's office. <laughs> so, I, I, but he already told me to listen to one, uh, Peter Meachin's Apex. I don't. It's a it's a beautiful piece, but he's got other ideas. So, um, I'm always up for listen to uh, learning new new rep. But I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm checking out the website. It looks great. Yeah, it says uh, guest conductor, Dr. Joe Parisi, guest percussion directors, Dr. Annie Stevens and Dr. Andrea Bennett, um, and 2023 guest soloist, Raquel Samayoa. Looks like it's going to be a great time. Yeah. More guest tutors to be announced. There's more. Yeah, that looks spectacular. What do you need more for? You have Rachel. What do you, I mean, you don't need any more. You have all the guests you need. I was thinking one or two solos. When they told me three, maybe an encore, I was like, oh, I have to rethink this. <laughs> you you just said there uh, might be an encore. Now you're now you're stuck. <laughs> Somebody will listen to this and they'll be there and be like, she said she's got an encore. Adam, doing it. Adam just did the same thing for me with IET. He was like, hey, what are you playing for the recital? I was like, excuse me? <laughs> recital. And he, I was like, I'm just, I'm conducting a group. And he's like, no, you're, you're playing on a recital. You're playing, you're the, oh, I'm playing the opening recital. I'm the opening of the opening. I'm like, oh, I can't suck then. The first <laughs> notice all these high school kids are going to hear. <laughs> all right. So question of the day, since we're talking about uh, an international brass band conference, I thought it'd be fun to question what is your favorite location that you've visited because of brass band so it could be for a performance or you know adjudication or something like that uh to start it off myself um 
this sounds silly, uh, but I really enjoyed going to uh, Virginia Beach with the JMU Brass Band. I had been to J- Vir- I've been to Virginia Beach a bunch of times. We did it for Virginia <laughs> Music Education Association. Um, we did a thing, but going with the brass band and going in the middle of winter to a beach was really neat. And normally it's so touristy and packed. It was actually really nice to see the boardwalk with just no one there and just like exist there. And just, it was, it was cool. And even though, you know, I live in Florida, I don't visit beaches very often. So that was nice. So that was my favorite. Virginia beach is awesome. It can be. I'll, I'll take uh, outer banks any day though. Yeah, most of my times at Virginia Beach have been on the water side, out on boats there. Yeah. Where you can, we've actually, I've actually seen a whale out there, which was pretty cool. I've got a pretty cool video of it. What about you, Amy? I have a feeling we all know at least what country yours is going to be in. Yeah, probably it's going to be her first brass band ever time ever playing with a brass band with Black Dyke. <laughs> no, I was I was looking up some stuff. Um. I do, man. Um, no, you got you got the country. You got the country right. I'm kind of yeah. Um, I was. Uh, I think I'm gonna go with Lanercross uh, Priory. And then, oh, you told us about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, because I mean, like I could say like a really cool like hall. I've played in in some cool halls. Um, but lots of people have played in cool halls. I think that Lanacross was, was uh, one of my favorites because I'm a, I'm a huge like uh, British history nerd. I listen to the British history podcast and like read. I just you know, so going to going to a priory that uh, was founded. I just looked it up in 1169. Um, An so, old building. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very very old and um i got to be a guest soloist well not a guest soloist i was a soloist within the band playing with um playing with buses of the barn so one of the oldest brass bands in existence playing in in uh, a priory that is so old and uh played michelangelo um and the acoustics in that place were just beautiful just gorgeous it was one of those times and you have to like just just focus just focus keep playing because sometimes like you're playing like oh it's so pretty oh crap I need to play now (laughs) (laughs) so that was that I think that I think that's mine next yeah my mine isn't nearly as uh special as that but it's still you know from from brass band land it's the going to Royal Albert Hall and watching the national finals uh in that venue you know, it's like going back to the motherland and where the premier event, brass band event in the world. What, what year was uh, that? Do you know? It was, I think it was 18, 2018. I thought you were uh, like 18 what? what? Excuse me? It was 18, it was 18. I believe the year was 1862. <laughs> 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 yeah, 2018, they uh, uh, Kenneth Downey's Handle in the Band was the, was the test piece. And and I sat there and literally listened to twenty of those in a row. I didn't miss a single one. And it, I had a score. And the first time I heard it, I was like, "Yeah, I don't know about this." But after you listen to it twenty times, I was like, "Wow, this is a fantastic piece of music," <laughs> and and played so well by so many bands. So it was, you know, that was that was a that was a pretty cool experience. I I like that. I, All right, I, last one up, Rachel's turn. Yep. Uh, it was one of the, um, it was the, the year I went with Fountain City to Brass and Concert, but we had a free day in Edinburgh and I think we actually played there, Scotland. And I think that was the coolest place just walking around the cobblestones and seeing all the castles, um, going to pubs, you know, it, it was, it was a pretty cool experience. I used to go, I used to travel up to Edinburgh and on the weekend sometimes just like grab a train and go up. And I had a, there's a, um, there's a youth hostel that was like, the building is from like the 1200s. Um, and there's a youth, ho- youth hostel, like right downtown. And I was like a frequent, <laughs> frequent flyer to the youth hostel, just go up <laughs> And uh, there's a um, there's the statue of Abraham Lincoln um, in the there's a cemetery that overlooks the city, 
Um, and there's a statue of Lincoln, um, right? It's, it's the same cemetery as David Hume. So I would go, um, at like in like right as the sun's coming up and go to that cemetery that overlooks the city and just watch the sun come up over, over, uh, because it's, if you haven't been to, to the city, it's like the old part of the city is all like the same colored stone. Yeah. And so sunrises and sunsets look really, look really pretty. Um, uh, so why do they have a statue of Abraham Lincoln? Because, because it was during the, the civil war, um, because they were going through like their depression, their great depression while we were in our civil war. Okay. Um, so from, from what I was told, this might not be totally exactly historically accurate. So nobody get mad at me. Um, but from what I was told when the North couldn't buy cotton from the South, they began buying textiles from from the from Great Britain, and so if they're in the middle of their great their Great Depression, um, you know they kind of formed that alliance that that helped them kind of get through that. Ah, so they really yeah. they really like Abraham Lincoln over there because he bought a so, lot of T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, that's so. <laughs> But it was nice to have the the statue of Abraham Lincoln because sometimes when I was homesick, it was nice. There were a few in in Manchester too that I would visit. That's that's fascinating. All right, so viewers, listeners, please help me out down the line and submit a question that you would like to hear from any of us. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a favorite or anything like that. Also, if you're listening to this thing and you're not subscribed on whatever platform it is, push the button. It helps. Helps me know. What's going on with all these sorts of things? But uh, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on and hanging out with us. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. I had a great time. Thank you. You don't have to lie to us. <laughs> I tell no lies, I promise. Uh...